0: Welcome to the Mark Steiner Show here on The Real News. I'm Mark Steiner, and it's great to have you all with us once again. We'll be producing a series of productions and conversations about the rise of the right in America, the danger it presents, what we can do not just to confront it, but to stop it and build a different future. One of those organizations at the forefront of the struggle has been the Poor People's Campaign. And one of its key leaders is the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. A couple of weeks ago, she wrote an article entitled how Do We Confront White Christian Nationalism? It was in TomDispatch.com and also featured in The Nation magazine where I first read it. The power of the evangelical, fundamentalist, right-wing Christian movement has always been a force in America. But so has his opposite, from the struggle for abolition to civil rights to this moment. Now, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris has joined me numerous times over the years and joins us again today. She's co-director of the Cairo Center co-founder of the Poverty Initiative, national co-director of the Poor People's Campaign, and wrote the book, Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. She's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church and spent years of her life battling for social, economic, political justice on the front lines with grassroots organizations from across the country. And Reverend Liz Theo-Harris, welcome back. Good to have you with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Mark.
0: So I really love this article. I mean, I think that... It's funny, I, I when I read this article, I had just finished reading a couple of articles about um, uh, Donald Trump's trumped-up Christianity <laughs> <laughs> and how he uses this nationalist movement um, That's right. uh, to push his own agenda. Um, so let me just begin there. I mean, I, I talk talk a bit about what you think is this dynamic now with Christian nationalism and where it fits into everything.
1: Well... Uh, this is so important, right? And and it surely does not start with Donald Trump, and it it will not end even if his uh, presidential hopefulness for twenty twenty four is defeated. Um, but there is indeed a, a long uh, history of of development of of you know this Christian nationalism. But, but the way it's, it's kind of playing itself out in our, our political and economic life today is, is one of, of real concern um, and that we, we must pay some attention to. You know, what we have is uh, really a, um, a theology, an ideology that, that uh, you know, both blames poor people and immigrants and queer people and women for all of society's problems, pits us against each other, and then puts it all kind of on God, saying that, that, you know, the true followers of the God of history are exclusive, are racist, you know, protect private property, put forward this idea that Jesus was a card carrying member of the NRA. Um, <laughs> they, they, they assert um, that the real moral issues of our day are who has sex with who about the, the choice, the health choices of women. Um, when, when most of the issues that these, uh, Christian nationalists are, are taking a lot of time and effort around aren't even in our sacred texts and traditions. Um, and yet there's real silence coming out of, of many of these communities on the issues. That that Jesus and the prophets were were very loud about, um, and that is economic justice. That is, people having a voice in in the decisions that affect their lives. That is, you know, actually uh, critiquing those in power who would take the wealth and power of the world just for themselves. And allow the deprivation of rights and of livelihoods of a majority of, of God's people, and so, you know, today what what we have is is a politic that has been really kind of veiled or framed. Uh, you know, one of my co chair of the Poor People's Campaign, Reverend Doctor Barber, often will talk about these Christian nationalists who pray P R A Y over uh, politicians who pray P R E Y. on the poor, on the immigrant, on the widow, on the child, on exactly who um, in our sacred texts uh, God has the most concern and most interest in caring for.
0: So, you know, as you were speaking, one of the things that hit me, um, uh, this question is a little diversion from America, but I want to ask and come right back to our own country. I'm curious, um, as a theologian, as an activist— what do you think the dynamic is across the globe right now? When you see this happening in Christi- in, in, among many Christian denominations, you see it happening in the Jewish world as well, especially in Israel. You see it happening in the, in the Muslim world with kind of real fundamentalists taking charge and, and, and battling societies. You see it taking place in India with Hindu nationalists. You see it across the spiritual spectrum. I mean, what, what do you think that dynamic is? Why is that happening at this moment? And what do we have to contend with here?
1: Well, indeed, there is surely been a rise of religious nationalism of all, of, of all stripes over the past decades. Um, and, and, you know, I think we actually have to look at the connection that that, that religious nationalism has to, to both Um, economic shifts and changes that are taking place, uh, in the global economy, as well as, um, the rise of these autocratic political movements who kind of take advantage of economic shifts and changes and kind of prey on, on vulnerabilities that, that exist. And so indeed, you know, all over the, the, the globe, um, there are these nationalistic movements that are gaining strength and who have some very, uh, Powerful uh, leaders who who then have very powerful bases in these nationalistic movements. I mean, you have it in Brazil, you have it in India, you have it really uh, across the world. I, I think there is something, though, to be said, especially about Christian nationalism, even the world whole over, because of of the the role that Christianity plays and has played, both being connected to colonialism, imperialism, Uh, I think in terms of of what what we're seeing now, um, you know, in different countries across the world of these evangelical nationalistic movements that are gaining some traction amongst, you know, marginalized people. Um, But then also from how rich and powerful uh, Christians in, in this country, and sometimes not even very Christian people, um, but politicians have a real interest in in fanning the flames of nationalism and division um, and using a particular theology and then kind of importing that to, to many of the kind of countries across the world where the U.S. has been... Um, you know, as Dr. King calls uh, a great purveyor of violence in the world, and so we see this um, in different parts of Africa. We see this in different parts of Latin America. Um, we see this, you know, really all over, where there's battles taking place around sexuality, around abortion, um, but that are kind of really coming from um, some elite players um, in the Christian nationalist movement in the United States.
0: You know, it makes me think of one of the, you have a couple of quotes in your article um, from uh, Archbishop Tutu, um, one of our most amazing leaders uh, that and people that have ever exist on this planet, at least in my lifetime. That's right. um, and the quote is, what you just said reminds me of a quote that you, that you quoted in the article, which is, mm-hmm. when the missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us pray. We closed our eyes. When we opened them, we had the Bible and they had the land. <laughs> so I I've always love that quote. And I'm glad you put that in there because it's so apt, even for what we're facing in America today. And you see the land as a euphemism for what we, what we're facing in this country today.
1: That's right. I mean, so what we, what we have, and again, this is, this has been developing for decades. Um, it didn't just show up at the Capitol on January 6th or even the, the kind of religious rally that happened on January 5th, but, but for decades, what has been developing in this country, very, um, you know, very motivated, very, uh, politically motivated has been a, a movement of Christians who have taken a position on, on, on so many different issues, but, but used, for instance, um, the desegregation of schools. And when they couldn't win on that, switched over to, to a fight for abortion and kind of, were able to kind of impose a, a racist framework, you know, in local political governments all across the country, especially in the South. And, and what we're seeing still is is the the rising influence of of this of these Christian nationalists and of especially the ideology that is attacking our democracy, allowing for very racist and anti poor legislation to be being passed, um, and that kind of just puts a veil on on grave injustice that, again, our, our faith traditions, especially Christianity, have a very different message about.
0: So the, these are two questions here. One is what you just said, what the struggle may portend, especially in the Christian world. But let me start with, I mean, how critical is, is this kind of, for want of a better term, right-wing fundamentalist evangelical Christianity to the right-wing surge and, and, and to its takeover, you know, as we all both know that there are at least now 26 state legislatures that are completely dominated by the far right. And they are dwindling down uh, the the right to vote across America, which is in one way in this, in, in this nation, in this democracy to seize control legally. So, and how, how important is, is this kind of Christian nationalism to do that? And and what does that set up?
1: So indeed, I mean, we are are seeing the largest attack on voting rights in this country right now since the attack that that came in Reconstruction, right, right after the Civil War, where we had these fusion governments all across the South of of poor white and um, formerly enslaved and 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 other freed people um, who had kind of come together, formed these new. Um, reconstruction governments rewrote constitutions, put in, you know, beautiful moralistic language, but that about freedom and justice and, and, you know, in the North Carolina constitution, for instance, that constitution doesn't say just pursuit of justice um you know, establishing justice. It also talks about, you know, the right to bear the fruit of one's labor, right? I mean, that that's enshrined in the constitution there because of these amazing reconstruction governments. And yet what has to happen for those in power to, to kind of grab their power back is, is to defeat... Um, defeat reconstruction and again who who helped to write a bunch of these constitutions and a part of these reconstruction governments were were pastors and and moral leaders as well as as those that were directly impacted we're seeing something similar going on today because a multiracial democracy of poor and low income black and latino and native and white um, and asian and and are coming together across all of these different lines. They have the those in power, you know, greatly scared. Um, uh, you know, it 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 isn't really possible right now for for those that can control the Republican Party to win elections fairly, and to especially to win national elections. And so what you have is this intense attack on voting rights. Um, uh, you know, again, if if all the you know, and more than four hundred. Voting rights, voter suppression laws are being, have been introduced since 2021 into 49 states and and 19 of those states have already passed. This will mean that in the next elections, 55 million people who voted in the 2020 election just will be disenfranchised. They, They won't have the same manners to vote as they did in 2020. But we can't separate out this political attack, this attack on our democracy, from this rise of Christian nationalism um, and this rise of kind of autocracy and um, pushing back uh, and the abridging of people's, you know, right to to elect leaders that represent them, and 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 a huge tool that has been used to 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 allow for this. Huge attack on our our rights and on our kind of uh, civil liberties is is taking place through this veil again of Christian nationalism, and by some very powerful Christian nationalist actors who have, uh, again, not just shown up overnight, but who have been building networks of media, building a base um, in different churches, and and taking political power um, by being very close to different political actors all across the country. And, and, and so, you know, this is, this is both, um, uh, something that should be a cause for alarm, but again, it doesn't have to have the last word. Um, there are people pushing back and, and organizing. And, and this is why the Cairo center and the poor people's campaign, a national call for Moral revival is just that it's a moral revival because, um, you know, our deepest moral values actually really push back against these extremists um, in our political views, as well as these, these nationalists in our religious views.
0: So let's <clears throat> explore that a bit more. I mean, and it, it just, in terms of how this is confronted and how it's, and more, and more importantly, really, I think to start talking about how it is defeated and how it is stopped um, and what that means. I mean, it, you know, um, you have a great quote in your article. Let me just read this to our listeners, and I will encourage everybody at the end uh, to hit the link and to read the article because it's really well f- worth a read. Um, As the vast majority of food, food pantries and other emergency assistance programs are run out of them, the churches, uh, much of the civic work going on in churches is motivated by varying interpretations of the Bible when it comes to poverty. These range from outright disdain and pity to charity more proactive advocacy and activism for the poor you also write about how the 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 bible belt is also in the south is also the poverty belt so the question is what lessons we get from that but also really so uh, how do you stop it when you just said that they are right now these these states are disenfranchising 55 million potential voters through the most horrendous means is just, I mean, it's just so blatant the way they're trying to stop people from having the right to vote. Um, You know, and after, I hate to digress like this, but after kind of being as a young man in the South, in the civil rights movement, fighting for voting rights across America to see them be able to take it back. So what now in terms of the work you do and others around you doing actually can stop this and build a movement to replace it?
1: Well, I, I really believe that, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a biblical yes, scholar. And, and, I, and I, I come to those, I mean, both from my upbringing. Um, I was raised in a family that was deeply dedicated to doing the work of justice, but but from on my mother's part in particular, a very deep faith commitment. And and so, uh, you know, I was a Sunday school teacher by 13. I was a deacon by 16, right? I mean, I am the church, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but again, it was never separated that doing justice and advocating for an end to systemic racism. I mean, these were, this was what you do, not just to be a good person, not just because there's injustice, but because of, of that's what God and our faith traditions command. Um, and, and that is really important. Um, you know, I've been doing grassroots anti-poverty organizing for more than 25 years, and almost not a week goes by in my life when somebody doesn't come up to me and say, you know, I wish you would stop talking about ending systemic racism and poverty, because don't you know, in the Bible, it says the poor will be with you always. Now, this does not just come to me from extremist Christian nationalists who would call themselves that. Right. This comes from anti-poverty activists themselves. This comes from scientists and, and religion scholars. Right. That right now the dominant interpretation of our biblical texts, our sacred um, texts and theology, really kind of s- kind of says that it that God condones injustice. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's others that, that are, that go a lot farther and say that, that again, God is gonna, you know, punish, um, poor people and women and, you know, all of this. Again, that's not biblically based. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine that people try to quote the Bible, but, but they always misquote it and, and, and can (laughs) often find very little biblical justification. But what, folks have also done is, is allowed for this kind of overall interpretation of theology to, to justify poverty and inequality, um, especially in a, a very unequal and very poverty impoverished world and impoverished democracy. And so, so to me, one of the responsibilities, but also opportunities that our justice movements have, is to reclaim a bunch of, of the biblical and theological foundations, but also just the values in our society, values that are enshrined in our constitution or who've been fought to be put there. You know, values that are in our our just in our communities uh, about justice and about you know fairness and about truth and about welfare, right? I mean, how is it possible that we have the word welfare in our constitution? And yet we're having a debate this many years into a pandemic about not getting a a child tax credit to, to, to families that need it. Welfare is in our constitution providing for the common welfare. Well, let's just, let's just talk about this or, or or for the general welfare, sorry, but, 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 but that means that, that, that somehow we have allowed a small group of, of very powerful people to, to kind of redefine what, what our values even are. But if we don't allow the, that misinterpretation, if we come together and say and show that, you know, our, our sacred texts and traditions... But then also our justice movements are putting forward a different set of values. And, and that's that, you know, it says in our Bible, you can't honor and worship God without taking care of and welcoming your immigrant neighbor, organizing society around the needs of the poor. I mean, that, that's not because I wanted to be there. It's because that's what's in Deuteronomy. You know, you have anti-poverty program and, and pro-justice program over and over and over in our, in our sacred texts and, and, and we see movements including the Poor People's Campaign, you know take up those biblical and theological foundations and be able to push forward you know a new a new vision that's rooted in these values that that says that everybody must be in uh, nobody can be left out and that when you lift from the bottom everybody rises.
0: as so, you were speaking I was thinking that <clears throat> sometimes the in the, the inept inaction sometimes of the Biden administration, makes you worry about them as much as I do the right wing at times, (laughs) just in terms of what we face and what could we should be doing. So just, I'd like to really kind of conclude with what leading up to June 18th, which I want people to understand and know about as we finish this conversation, but also specifically what strategically are you all putting on the table about what we do and how we organize this defense as well as an offense about building the future and 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 not allowing us to kind of fall into a right wing nationalistic kind of nation, because I think we are under I think we're under serious threat. I mean, I think that this is the most serious threat I've seen. Think America has had since, for one of a better thought, since the late, the late eighteen hundred, late 1877, when Reconstruction was destroyed. You know, and on the heels of civil rights and all the other movements and all the things we, people fought for from the thirties to the seventies. Seeing it all being dismantled and brought down again, so I'm, I'm and I'm really interested in, in what you think strategically has to be done and and what you all are doing.
1: So what we propose is that a moral fusion movement is is the answer uh, to to Christian nationalism, to to increased poverty, to to all of the injustices that are kind of wreaking havoc on people's lives and livelihoods. And and what we mean by that is moral, and that it's rooted in our our. You know, biblical and theological foundations and traditions that talk about love for one another and, and again, you know, lifting from the bottom so everybody can rise. Um, fusion, in that it brings together people from all walks of life across all the barriers and, um, uh, and divisions that, that right now are really being stoked in our society. And so across geography, across race, across religion. What we again saw in 2020 and what we are trying to do. As we, you know, organize this moral march on Washington and to the polls is that one third of the electorate in 2020 was poor and low income. And yet we have very little attention, conversation and action around the needs of one third of the people that are Voting in our elections. And in battleground states back in 2020, it was upwards of 40, 45% of the electorate was poor and low income. And across race, right? You know, Native, Black, Latino, and poor white. Voting together, um, making the difference in terms of voting for candidates that said that they were going to raise wages and expand health care and address systemic racism and do the things that 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 the majority of people in this country need to thrive and not just barely survive. And and so this moral fusion movement that we're building is also about registering and and motive, mobilizing and organizing people for a movement that then can can vote can put. You know, independent political pressure on our uh, candidates and on our politicians by saying, Right now we are living in an impoverished democracy but the power to change that lies in the the bodies and souls of of poor and low income people who are really kind of trying to build a, a as as Reverend Dr. Barber has said and and we in the poor people's campaign put out a third reconstruction right um, and this one to fully address poverty and low wages and you know adjust these abridgments and and uh, uh, on voting rights and address the, you know, the climate crisis and the militarization of our communities in our world, and to address this false narrative of Christian and religious, all forms of religious nationalism. And, and so if we take even from someone like Reverend Dr. King in the last years of his life, who is, who is proposing a Poor People's Campaign, we take some of the strategy there that the Achilles heel, the weak point of our, our current political system that has allowed for such violence to occur to so many people um, and poverty and racism to exist. And, and climate chaos, then by pulling those people together and having folk, you know, organized to take on at the same time, systemic racism and poverty and ecological devastation and militarism and this narrative of, of Christian nationalism, you know, in this organizing, organizing, organizing kind of way through what we call, you know, moral analysis, moral articulation and moral and, and moral action, then we really believe that's a hope for the nation um, and to, to really save the soul of our democracy and to, to be able to put people, um, lift people up and put people first.
0: Well, Reverend Mrs. Harris, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, um, before we leave each other t- today, I'm gonna leave people with a quote that you started your article with from the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Uh, but I w- real quickly, just tell us a bit more, just very quickly about June 18th and what you're building up towards so people understand what what this means.
1: Great. So June 18th will be a mass poor people and low wage workers assembly and a moral march on Washington into the polls. People from all across the country will converge and convene in Washington, D.C. on that Saturday, June 18th for a declaration, not just a day um, where we're going to come forward with the, the very solutions to the problems that exist around systemic racism and the suppression of voting rights, around poverty and low wages, around um, saving the earth and everything living in it, and around all of these issues, and, and show the power of poor and low-income people. And so hoping that folks will be involved and invited to, to help to organize for this, you know, massive generationally transformative event. Um, we already on the poorpeoplescampaign.org website have buses that are being organized and, and mobilizing kits and information. And so hope that folks not just sign up to come and, and be in the numbers, but, but help to organize, um, you know, thousands of people to join us in Washington, D.C.
0: And I'm going to leave you all, to, before we say goodbye to the Reverend Lister Harris, at least for today, um, the, a quote that uh, the article opened up with, I think that uh, is really important, and I just love the things that Tutu has said. Um, and he said, he, he said, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse, and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. <laughs> I <laughs> love that quote. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Liz, thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today. It was great having you with us. And you can find links to the Reverend Liz Harris' article and to the Poor People's Campaign June 18th action in D.C. right here on our website. And please, let me know what you think about what you heard today, what you'd like us to cover, just write to me at mss at and I'll get right back to you. And a really important reminder that Bill Fletcher Jr. and I will be producing a series on the rise of the right and what we can do to stop it coming out on The Real News in March. So for Dwayne Gladden, Stephen Frank and the crew here at The Real News, I'm Mark Steiner. Stay involved, keep listening and take care.